It's ad break time. The Beyond Solitaire podcast is proudly sponsored by Central Michigan University's Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations, and they have some great stuff coming up. Fans of Thousand Year Old Vampire will be delighted to know that their next Kickstarter project is Jason Cox's 500 Year Old Vampire, a new project designed to be a cooperative writing experience that you can try with your friends at home, but that is also written to meet national classroom standards. Jason was my guest for episode 102, so you can listen to that interview and learn more directly from him. Also, I'll be teaching a class for CMU's Certificate in Applied Game Design, so if you ever wanted to take a class with me, here's your chance. The course is called Using Games to Teach What You Can Convey Through Play. It starts March 6th, and registration is open right now. Lastly, I'm going to throw in an ad for myself. If you want to show some love for my show and for my upcoming public scholarship projects, I would be deeply grateful for your support on Patreon at patreon.com slash beyondsolitaire. My goal is to get to a point where I can spend my summers doing board game work instead of summer school, and you'd be helping me make that happen. For now, though, let's get on with the show. Hey, gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and I'm here in the pod with two special guests this week. I have Dr. Ray Kimball. He is the CEO of 42 Ed Games, and he is an alum of the show, so I will link his previous episode down in the show notes where he talks about his cool game consulting company. And I have a new guest, I'm Dr. Kimberly Redding. She is on the history faculty at Carroll University in Wisconsin. Is that right? That's right. Waukesha, Wisconsin. Fantastic. So are y'all like cold where you are? I'm in Atlanta, and it's never cold. We've got snow. We've got snow. <laughs> I'm, I'm in Arizona, so cold for us is, you know, 50 degrees. <laughs> See, that sounds sounds good to me. <laughs> um, so I've had you both on because you have a project together that I'm very excited about, and that is Eyeball to Eyeball. So do you want to give the listeners a rundown on what your game is and who it's for and, and maybe when we can expect it, although I know that's still kind of in the air. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So eyeball to eyeball is simply put your opportunity to play through one of the seminal crises of the Cold War. Uh, it's the opportunity to experience the Cuban Missile Crisis from the perspective of one of several factions, the U.S., the Soviet Union, the Cubans, media or intermediaries, which is kind of our catch-all term for many of the international actors. Uh, and it's really that that vitality of perspectives that we think sets this game, this simulation apart uh, from some of the other ways that the Cuban Missile Crisis has been told before. And that you're really not getting, you're getting beyond this very binary perspective of U.S. versus Soviet Union and getting to see some of the other viewpoints that are in there. Uh, it's been, yeah. yeah, it's been accepted for publication uh, through CLGS at Central Michigan University Press. And our current hope is that the Kickstarter for it will be out in the fall. But of course, there are always potential challenges with that. Indeed, it is game publishing after all. And then, uh, uh, Kimberly, why don't you tell us your role in the project? Sure. Well, I, I came to the game that Ray had actually created as primarily a role play about U.S. and Soviet um, interactions and politics, right? Which is the fairly traditional narrative of the Cold War, um, that Cuba was kind of caught in the crosshatches of these two superpowers. And I, by training, I'm a Europeanist and had lived off and on for quite a while in Berlin. And so my view of the Cold War is, is strongly rooted in the German and the European experience. So when I got a hold of the game and started using it, I started kind of throwing in more and more characters representing different 
perspectives. Uh, Willy Brandt, the mayor of Berlin, is one who, to me, he would have been following this situation closely and be deeply vested in how it panned out. Um, and Ray was gracious enough to um, accept my suggestions and additional characters and not take offense. And I would say from there, we've kind of been batting it back and forth um, and using it in classes and now through Ray's company. Fantastic. That's awesome. And so just to clarify, the factions that are in the game, at least according to the Reacting Consortium site, are the U.S., Soviets, the Cubans, the media, and the international faction, which includes the UN and world figures. So what made y'all settle on those factions in particular? And uh, what are some of the thoughts between behind some of their maybe special traits for players? Um, so, so I'll lead off on this. As Kimberly mentioned, um, this started out as a very kind of binary classroom simulation, U.S. versus Soviets. And really, it was Kimberly's key insight in playing with the game uh, after it was shared with the reacting community of there are so many more perspectives to bring into this. There are so many more viewpoints that, that need to be represented in here. Um, and even the other thing that we really love about the way we've set this up is that even within the factions, there are not unitary viewpoints, right? Within the U.S. faction, I'm not going to spoil anything, but within the U.S. faction, there are very different perspectives on what should be done with respect to the Cuban missiles. And the same thing holds for the Soviet uh, and, and the other factions. Uh, and then, Kimberly, do you want to talk a bit about uh, Cuba and media and, and intermediaries and some of the things that are at play there? I'll, I'll give it a stab, sure. As Ray said, um, within the factions, there are competitions and, you know, many of the people in international politics are highly motivated and quite competitive, like some of us in academia. And so they're jockeying, jockeying for positions amongst themselves. So... Within, for example, the the media faction, there are several journalists who see themselves as trying to potentially get the scoop of the century. <laughs> um, and, you know, whether that scoop comes from Havana or Washington or Moscow may not be as relevant as the fact that they get the scoop. And Ooh. for some of the international characters they want to be heard. They want to be part of the conversation. The United Nations, for example, does not want to be kind of swept into the corner, right? They, right. they want to be taken seriously as a mediator. Um, and so that complexity can be a little bit bewildering, but from my perspective, that's the point. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. That sounds really fun, actually. So, um, you know, I mean, when I think of the Cold War, I really do just think of the United States and the Soviet Union, right? Like, it's such mm -hmm. a, a a polarity, like, in my own mind. I think back to history class. Uh, I think back to, uh, like, Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> <laughs> You're dating yourself, Liz. <laughs> I'm young. I'm merely cultured. <laughs> um. But so, I, I mean, you know, it sounds like you know, that was how this game grew as well. Like it right. started out as more of a polarity and then expanded to factions. Right. So 
I know where I want to go with this. Let's start, though. This is a classroom game about how many people are intended to play this game and what are some of the learning objectives that have come out of this play? Yeah, so one thing we knew we wanted this game to be scalable for different sizes, right? And again, this comes from our respective experiences. Um, I, When I was teaching, I taught relatively small sections of 15 to 18. Um, Kimberly classes tended to be on the bigger side. So we wanted to really accommodate those. So you can play this with as few as 10 people. Now, if you play with that few, then the the, the faction play is limited. Uh, you basically only get the, the US, the Soviets, and a little bit of the Cuban perspective. Um, once you start getting up above 14 or 15 people, then you can really start making choices about which factions you want to bring in there. So let's say, for instance, you're teaching an international relations course um, you might decide that you really want to put an emphasis on the intermediary faction. Whereas if you're teaching, let's say, a communications course, uh, you, you want to bring in more of, of the media faction. So we really, uh, you can actually go all the way up to 38 roles uh, wow. in this game if you want to, with, and that's without like doubling any roles. And then you could, you know, ways to even expand it beyond that would be to have two people play a particular role, which I know the reacting community has really pioneered uh, in the last couple of years for, for larger section sizes. I'm trying to think if there's anything to add. I think, I think <laughs> not. But All right, don't worry. talk about the learning objectives? Sure. So, and you'll have to fill in here, right? Because you've been working with it more closely. But I think we've mentioned before, one of the learning objectives is the messiness of the past. Um, and the importance of individual agency as well as institutional or national agency, and that those aren't always aligned. So navigating through that experience is key to, to that realization, um, to meeting that learning outcome. Um, another important outcome of the game is and this will not be surprising, it's a history-driven game, is wrestling with the information that people had at the time. So it comes with a fairly robust set of primary sources. Um, and working through those and thinking about how, as the president, would I have gotten this information? What does it mean to me? Or how do I, as an advisor to the president, or as an advisor who believes that military action is the only way to prevent nuclear war, for example, how do I interpret the intelligence that I'm getting? Um, Ooh, and yeah, go ahead, Ray, you can jump in. Yeah, and, and you know, with the, the things that Kimberly is talking about, the game is very deliberately structured to allow for mistakes in those fields, right? right. It is it has prompts that you can misinterpret uh, what you can interpret a particular prompt as either, oh, this is a terrible accident or, oh, this is the other side trying to jockey for positional advantage. And those are real challenges that decision makers faced during the crisis and, you know, candidly still face today. So there's also, I think, uh, one thing that we hear over and over again from students is, I didn't appreciate how hard it is just to make a decision in this kind of role. Right. I thought it would be very easy. I'm the president. 
you're going to do what I say, and it doesn't work that way. And we're like, right. yes, you're right. It doesn't work that way. And in a time crunch. So that is very intentionally built into the game as well. So how tight is that time crunch? Like if you're planning to use this game in your class, I am, I'm sure that there are there's like a simulated time crunch within the world of the game. And then also how long does this take to run in a class setting? Yeah, so okay, game right. time itself, the game is structured in two chapters. Um, one, The first chapter is 41 minutes. The second chapter is 25 minutes. So you could, if you wanted to, play the game straight through in a 75-minute session um and and be able to do that um and one of the things that we offer in the game is some recommendations for hey if you're going to play it through then think about a debrief during the next session or if you're going to play it over two sessions here's a way to play chapter one during the first session have an interim assignment where they prompts people to kind of think about it and again this was one of kimberly's big contributions was thinking about what those assignments would, would look like and how they could really spur thought. Um, and then in the second session, playing chapter two and then doing the debrief right afterwards. Right. So when those prompts are generally things like um, a policy brief. So all of the advisor roles, it's recommended start the first game day having written a policy brief, right? What would you recommend to your head of state based on what you know. And then after that first game day, maybe that policy brief needs to be revised or, and or maybe you think there's someone else in the room within your faction who should not be listened to. Ooh. <laughs> right, so you can sort of use that opportunity to, to reflect on what has just happened life skill and adjust your thinking based on that and adjust your strategy based on that. Ooh, that sounds exciting. So I guess that leads into a natural direction of what kind of tangible things are students creating during this game? Sounds like they're doing some writing um, that you can grade because I think that every time you do something in your class, you cannot play a game across two classes and have no accountability. So how are you, <laughs> how are you balancing between stuff that you can grade, like things that you have to be responsible for and also still having the game be fun and meaningful? Right. I think that's where some of the technological piece that um, Ray can speak to this better than I can. He's more behind the scenes in that way. But I think part of the assessment can come through the written assignments that students do that we suggest but what I really like about the technological piece that Ray has set up and running it through an online platform is that as an instructor, I'm doing less timekeeping, juggling, sending out prompts during the game. And I'm able to do a lot more listening, monitoring the interactions and seeing how students are speaking with one another. So that becomes for me something quite tangible that I can evaluate. Um, but it's not leaving students in the position of giving a speech and then spending the next 25 minutes listening to speeches. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I always wonder about that. I mean, I teach in a high school setting, 
but maybe even more than in a college setting. My students are gone in the blink of an eye. You do not, exactly. <laughs> you do not engage, they're gone. <laughs> so when you mention an online platform, uh, what do we mean by that? Is it just like you can set this up in Zoom and Slack and just kind of let it front and, and just kind of let it fly? Or uh, is there an actual special eyeball to eyeball online platform that now exists? Great question. Yeah, so there is. And so we use a platform that's called Experiential Simulation. Um, it is a custom platform that was created uh, by a company called Mustard Square. Uh, they originally built it for face-to-face -face exercises as part of the Reagan Presidential Library and uh, some of the, the classroom stuff at Mount Vernon. Um, and it was used for kind of face-to-face -face stuff. It ran on an iPad um, and it gave, you know, prompts and opportunity for votes and we were really fortunate uh, to get connected with Mustard Square and pitch this idea to them of, hey, what if we moved this into a fully online environment? And they were they were 100% behind it. They've been a great partner uh, ever since in, in working with us and developing it. And just like Kimberly said, the, the online platform, XSIM does a couple things for you. Um, it fully automates the decision making and the responses uh, to decisions. So the leaders get prompted at certain time hacks of, hey, you need to make a decision and here's your menu of four choices. And then based on what the leaders pick and how those decisions interact with each other, the game will automatically, XM will automatically generate a series of prompts that says, okay, here's the outcomes for it. So now you as the teacher no longer have to worry about, oh, okay, I'm going to get that. And now I'm going to look up this piece of paper and, and hand it out. The game does all of that for you. The game allows for messaging among the players that is historically accurate. So <laughs> the U.S. and Soviet sides cannot message each other at all. Which makes right. the students crazy. Yeah, <laughs> drives the students nuts. Like, what do you mean? I'm Kennedy. Why can't I message Khrushchev? Well, because it's 1962 and there's no hotline, dude. Sorry. Um, if you are the United States, you can't communicate with Cuba. Why? Well, because that was unthinkable in 1962. So instead, you have to work through ambassadors, which, again, is a whole mind-blowing idea for students of, wait, what? There's there's ambassadors out there that leaders have to communicate through, and it really forces them to be deliberate about what they say and what they pass along. Uh, and then the last thing that XSIM does is it provides an easy reference for some of these primary sources that we talked about, that they can easily jump in and pull up that primary source and, and be able to refer to it. Now, XSIM is only like text and, and graphics messaging um, for folks who, and, and so we do encourage people to use it even during face-to-face -face sessions right. because it really, again, it just streamlines that classroom activity and really lets the, uh, really lets the, the teacher focus on actually teaching and engaging with their students. And if, folks, I could, okay, yeah. if I could just jump in, I would say the other thing it does is it, even in the classroom, and I've used it in a face-to-face -face classroom with the XSIM, and I've also used the game with XSIM with some students in the classroom and some online, right? As we've all been teaching over these past several years. And even when all of the students are in the same physical space, having the communication be primarily over the computer conveys that sense of distance. They feel like they're apart. 
Um, mm. And that's part of the historical piece as well. Um, you know, there's a there's a bit of a delay between when you submit your decision and find out what happens. And um, you can't just swivel around in your chair, basically. So I think that works, the SIM, XSIM works really well in multiple formats for that reason. I think that's all I wanted to add. Go ahead, Ray. It, no, and that's a, that's a great point. Yeah, because, you know, typically everybody is in one room, but you're seated in factions. And again, as Kimberly pointed out, XSIM, because they no longer have the ability to get up and walk between factions, they have to communicate using XSIM. It, it reinforces that distance. So then for folks who want to do this fully remote, fully online, we have a custom Discord server that is set up uh, that folks can come in. It's already got the, the room set up. It's already got the channel set up so that literally all you have to do is have students come in, you assign them their particular faction role in Discord, and then they're off and running. And you know, we wrestled with a lot of different options uh, and we ultimately settled on Discord because we liked its ability to confine people to channels Mm -hmm. um, which is really, which is really important for this game. Again, that that sense of isolation, that sense of distance, is really important to the overall kind of Cold War mistrust that the game both fosters and relies on. All right. So just to clarify, th this game can be played basically with any level of technological plugin. So you could just run this manually Absolutely. and have the teacher be the game master. So if you are a teacher out there and you're a little tech averse, you don't want to deal with it. You don't have to. But there's also like a little client that you can have students pull up. Like if you're a one-to-one -one school, does it work on phones as well? Anything that'll run a browser. Anything that'll run a browser. Okay, so basically you can have something where there's a chat client that limits who can talk to whom and that will essentially run the game for you through prompts. Or you can have a fully teched out distant Discord experience with this game. Correct. Yeah. And then Correct. I had one more question just as a teacher, which is uh, if you're using the chat client, the one that's just, you could be speaking face-to-face, -face, but also have chats. Can a teacher get a transcript of what the students wrote? <laughs> so this this is our most requested feature, and it's something that our developer is working on right now. Right now, we can get that manually. We can reach out to the developer after a game and say, hey, send us the spreadsheet, and the, you know, the developer will respond as quickly as they can, recognizing that they have other clients and other things to do. Uh, no, we are first. Things, yeah, one of the things <laughs> that the developer is doing in this most current version that they're working on now is to give the instructor, the game master, the ability at the end of a chapter or at the end of a game to just hit a button and it spits out the, the spreadsheet. So to be really more responsive to that in instructor's needs. Right. Oh, that's awesome. Like as a teacher, I can see it being really fun to be able to look through that. And also, you know, if there's any shenanigans, I'd want to know. So <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Ray, do um, you want to say something about Times Square and the Washington Mall? Oh, yeah. And and there are uh thanks, Kimberly. I appreciate that. Yeah. So one of the things uh you know, one of the things that we created in Discord because we recognized that there needed to be this ability for uh especially for the media who are kind of spread all over the place, right? So you've got one media character that's in Washington, you've got one media character that's in Moscow, you've got one, you've got a couple others that are then in New York. Um, we recognize that there needed to be some kind of ability for them to move and engage with the decision makers in the way that they would be able to do that 
uh, in the actual game space. And so what we we created these uh, these channels in uh, in in Discord that are open to really anybody who's in that capital. So you know so you know so for the U.S. faction, for instance, they've got their private channel, which is uh, the executive committee, but there's also a channel called the Roosevelt Room, which is meant to be like the Roosevelt Room in the White House, where you invite the media in and give them your pitch and let them think about it. Because remember, this is 1962, and there is no White House press room at this point. <laughs> the White House press room is the pool, but that's another story. Um, so there's these intermediary, there's these intermediate channels where on Discord online, folks can can to a limited extent. Folks who are in the same geography move and interact with each other again, really to give them that ability to uh, to share each other. And then the the one thing that Kimberly that brought to mind, the other thing that I failed to mention on XM, uh, it also has um, what, what we call the the media space, uh, the news yeah. uh, sorry the news feed, which basically allows that's where your media folks publish their stories. Um, and they can be seen by everybody, but it also allows select figures in the game who are national figures. So we're talking about folks like Kennedy, Khrushchev, Utant, Indira Gandhi, folks who have that, you know, international stature to put things. Oh, Fidel Castro. How could I forget Fidel Castro in the newsfeed? Um, to put <laughs> things in that newsfeed as a way of kind of simulating press conferences and simulating news releases. And I'm always fascinated at how students use the news feed. Uh, some roles will just glom onto that exactly. immediately because they recognize that it's the only really referent power that they have. It's the right. only way that they have to impact the narrative. And so some of the statements you get in the news feed are wonderful from a perspective historically and are also just hilarious when you read <laughs> That's awesome. And then, you know, being a high school teacher on a limited budget, I must ask. So once you purchase Eyeball to Eyeball, is it free to use the chat client? Yeah. So so what we set up right now um, is that there is an educational code. Uh, there's really two kind of components to using the chat client. There's a ticket fee and an admin fee. Um, for educational clients, we have a code that waives the ticket fee because we do we do believe in as broad access as possible. Um, but we do need to support the back end side of this, the hosting and the development that goes on. Um, so for educational clients, we only ask that educational clients pay the admin fee, uh, which is $2 per player, which we think is, is pretty reasonable uh, for this. And that's $2 per player for a whole game session. So it covers both chapters as, as well. And of course, covers me providing tech support as well, if you've got questions and stuff like that. So we definitely... We are sensitive to, to the question of cost here, um, we, and we do want to make sure that we are supporting uh, educational clients to the greatest extent possible. Got it. And again, if you want to run it manually, you can. So it's not a required purchase. Right. Absolutely. Got it. So how much background knowledge are you expecting students to come in with when they play this? Like, is this meant to be the capstone of a unit on the Cold War? Or is this meant to introduce students to the Cold War as they play? I know there are a lot of primary sources involved, but are they sources that you would already know and have read when you play? Or, um, you know, is this like jumping in for the first time? I would say, and Ray, you can correct me, but I would say it's... Well... I've used the game in a World Since 45 class, 
So we've already introduced the idea of the Cold War and the Cold War alliances and that kind of thing. And this is a, okay, what did this look like in real life? Right, take it out of the out of the history textbook or out of um, treaties and formal agreement. How did it play out? So it's sort of in the middle of that class, and I've also used it in a very intro level Western Civ class. That maybe we've done a role play about World War II or World War One, and talked about how conflicts play out in that time period. And then this is a contrast to that. So this, these, I don't have, I don't necessarily use it only with students who are upper level or who are deeply rooted in Cold War history. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it sounds like, Ray, here's where you need to jump in. There are potential players, at least, who are sort of Cold War Cold War gurus or Cold War geeks or Cold War hobbyists who know more about U.S.-Soviet relations than certainly than I do. And I think we were grateful to have reviewers read through the material who brought some additional depth to that, who said, hey, think about this. There are people who are not Western Civ students or students taking their second and only history class. <laughs> um, and so that lets that let me learn a lot and it brought a new depth to the game. So I think it works in a variety of contexts mm-hmm. because it the interactions are adaptable in that way. Got it. So you can just toss your students in or you can it'll still have some nuance and depth later on. Right. Yeah. Got it. And- and to add to Kimberly's point, you know, one of the things that we were very careful to do was in the game book that the students get, there is a there is a pretty detailed historical background that basically says how how do we get to October 1962 from the US perspective, from the Soviet perspective, from from the Cuban perspective. So if your course has not covered that ground, um, you can you can use that to kind of to kind of lead up to it. Um, or if you're just using this as a as a hobby group, you can use that to get up to speed. You know, we've had among the users we've had of this game, we've had history clubs that have just done this as a history club exercise. Like, hey, let's let's come play a historical role playing game. Uh, we just had somebody this past December use it as his final exam, um, and and actually graded uh, students on some of not only some of the interactions in the game but then some of their reflections and it was, right. it, he called it their grand finale, which I love. <laughs> did they That's, end up blowing up the world? They did end up blowing up the world. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> it is, it, it is not a spoiler to say that uh, that is definitely a potential outcome uh, of this game. So this actually is me to my next question, uh, which is, is it, is it a setup where only one faction can win? Can multiple factions win? Uh, or, um, does you know, for example, if you blow up the world, does that mean that everybody lost? How do we how do we determine who, who cold warred the best? <laughs> so it it's really Kimberly and I were were both laughing at the the latter point of if the world blows up, does that mean everybody loses? This was actually one of the review points that that we got uh, in the discussion of the game was 
your treatment of nuclear war is very binary. It doesn't really account for, <laughs> you know, limited nuclear exchange. And, and mea culpa. Yep, absolutely, right. absolutely true. And, <laughs> and so we are very clear in the game that, look, this, this game does not get into the nuances of limited nuclear exchanges and deterrence theory. If you, if you want to go that route, you're going to need to put some extra scaffolding in or, or, or you right. need to look for, for a different game. But yeah, to, to your point, um, there can definitely be multiple win conditions, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just all or nothing. And it can absolutely turn out that nobody wins. Even if there's no nuclear war, it can turn out that, you know, that this becomes a frozen conflict, right? Which right. frozen conflicts are very much a characteristic of the, you know, the Cold War and then immediate post-Cold War. Uh, so yeah, it, it is definitely not a, a I win, you lose. Uh, certainly the best diplomats out there try to find ways to generate win conditions for everybody. Right. And the game doesn't make that easy, but it does make it possible. Mm -hmm. Nice. So um, how do you engage students who are maybe a little bit reluctant to jump into the role play experience? I feel like this would be amazing with some of my classes and then others. I'm like, Ooh, how would I get this student to try this? Because I think they'd like it if they tried. So uh, what is built into this game to kind of lure in the reluctant student? So I, I think there's a couple of things. One, um, the fact that they get a role sheet that lets them inhabit a persona, right? So it's it's an opportunity. Hey, I don't have to be 18-year-old high school senior anymore. I can be Curtis LeMay, who you know was notorious for firebombing Japanese cities in World War II and is this cigar-chomping you know, Air Force general archetype. Hey, I... I get to inhabit this person and be that that person for a little while. So I think I think that's potentially attractive, uh, especially in a classroom safe space where, you know, you as the teacher have already established their ability to kind of engage and share. Exactly. Um, and I think that is really the key more than anything in, in, in the game itself. I think the teacher's ability to say, hey, this is a safe space. We can, you know, we can be at ease with each other here and we can be comfortable with what's going on. Um, the other nice thing is the game actually allows you, we've had several folks do this, where you can actually play just the first 10 minutes of the game as kind of a practice freebie. And it doesn't really give away anything huge. It just lets people get comfortable with the identities that they're inhabiting and how they're interacting with people so that they can then go, oh, okay, I get it now. Right. And then they're really ready to play uh, the chapter one. And Kimberly, I think you were actually the first one uh, to do that, to do the, the first 10 minutes kind of trial run. And it, it worked really well. And we've recommended that to, to players ever since. Right. It, and it works really well, not only for tentative students, but students who are super focused on grade and outcome. <laughs> that they can that sort of dip their toes in and get an idea of how how the mechanics work in a low stakes way. And I think Ray is probably too modest to say it, but one of the things that my students have been pulled in by is Ray, <laughs> who has sometimes you know zoomed into my class and provided a, a tutorial. And so they see there are humans behind this game. Right. This is a human invention. And these are some people who are passionate about learning in this way. 
Um, and I think that makes a difference. And I've also had students who have said ahead of time, I think I want a quieter role. I just want to be media because I don't want to have to talk much. And especially with that 10 minute opener or splitting the game into two chapters, mm-hmm. they start, they realize within that first 20, 25 minutes that they can influence world events through their writing, (laughs) that you don't have to be the Curtis LeMay or, you know, the charismatic Kennedy brothers to change the world. Maybe I I stated that a little bit, but to influence the world. Yeah. Indeed. Well, I think we're all changing, right? That's what we, that's what we sell. <laughs> um, but um, so I, I do want to ask just because, you know, again, I think about budgets and, and access and all of that. If you are running a fully non-tech version of this game, how mm-hmm. do you handle communications and how do you handle media output? So I would not run this game as a sole instructor in a classroom of probably not more than 15 people. Um, And I have had, I have tried running, I guess I would say that about most any kind of role play game. I think it's typically really important to be able to have someone handling logistics, even if it's a student fellow or another instructor or friend, someone to help keep track of timing and that kind of thing so Mm -hmm. that I as instructor can perhaps be the mailbox that communicates those ideas back and forth. Right. Um, And also giving advice. Okay. So basically it's best done with at least a backup person to like be the machine for you essentially. I would say so. And I have done it without that, but I think only once. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, that's one nice thing about the fact that the game can accommodate a pretty large number of roles is that there's potential there if you wanted to combine your section or your course with another instructor, right, and, right. and run it run it as, as a game with both of the sections together, and then that way you've got that instructor there as well, and maybe one of you is doing timekeeping and making announcements, and the other one is running messages between ambassadors uh, mm-hmm. and factions to, to facilitate that. Gotcha. And I gotcha. think if I was running it, I'm just thinking out loud now, so you can delete this part if you want, but <laughs> I, I'm thinking if I were running it alone, I think it would take more time just because the exchange of information is a little bit slower right. because it's not yeah. automated, right? And that's not a bad thing necessarily because there are students that get quite anxious as the clock is ticking down. Right. Um, yeah. The- and I'm thinking about this as like, as a high school teacher, what would I do? I already teach large classes. Um, right. You know, this might be something where I tried to get a senior in there to Beautiful. run it or an Absolutely. office aid. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other thing I would say on this is, 
look, we we recognize the pain of tech sometimes, right? Both of us have had to teach remotely. Both of us have had had to deal with COVID and the the shift to emergency remote teaching. And we have really bent over backwards to make the tech in this as accessible as possible. So there are tutorial videos uh, for all of the students that they can watch to kind of get a sense of it. There are breakdowns in their role sheets of, hey, this is this is what the tech does and this is who you can talk to and who you can't talk to. And there's a walkthrough video for instructors that they can sit and watch that walks you through every single little piece of the platform um, to actually help get you comfortable with that. And so I, any number of times I've had folks reach out to me to use this game, they initially see XM and they, they kind of recoil and they're like, oh no, another, I can't take another platform, please don't. And, inevitably every single one of them comes comes back and goes okay i actually watched the video and i'm cool with this i actually think this is going to be i think this is going to be fine so we totally we we totally understand the uh, tech phobic is is not a fair way to characterize it no. the tech concerns right that it's just naturally born of the environment that we're in and we have really gone a long way to try and address that right i would say tech saturated that's much, much better. Term. Yes, thank you. And I think that's where our developers have also been really helpful. So I would say, as someone who prefers to teach and be face to face with people, present company excluded, um, the development team did a really nice job helping us think about how how to streamline the dashboard that students see and that instructors see so that you know the commands that you need are pretty obvious and there's not a lot of superfluous <laughs> yeah so this actually already started to answer my last question but if you're a teacher who's never done this before and you're ready to give it a shot so just as students are reluctant right i think we as instructors are also often reluctant to you know try something that might fall flat or that we're scared to run scared we can't do it what is your advice to somebody who's who's playing a, a classroom size role-playing game for the first time and you know how do you get yourself in that that water um so i and i think this actually holds not only for this game but for a lot of the classroom role-playing games out there is grab on to the instructor manual that's right. provided or the instructor guidance and really read through it and parse through it carefully. Um, you know, most instructor manuals are written in kind of a different way than typical academic documents. So you might, it can be very easy to, to miss things. So definitely look through there um, and then don't hesitate to reach out to the game provider, um, and, and I know there's going to be some other game providers who are going to get grumpy at me for this, but but I can definitely tell you that it applies for this game. Reach out to us. We pride ourselves on being accessible on this game. My email address is on the game, um, and and it's meant for you to reach out to me and go, okay, I think I get it, but can you really can you help me understand this part of it or what this does? Um, and and nothing would make me happier than to help walk an instructor through that and go oh yeah no totally understand why you're confused about that let's let's talk about it and i'll awesome. jump in ideologically or idealistically and say 
I truly believe that when I tell my students, we're going to try this and see what happens. Here's what I'm grading you on. Here's what I'm not grading you on, right? Here's the worst case scenario. And I would say in this game, the worst case scenario is everything goes kerflooey. <laughs> and yet the students still have worked with the primary sources, read the historical background. And even if everything else goes to hell in a handbag, we can have a rich discussion about those materials. And in my experience, if I show just a little bit of my own imperfection, right? My own inability to control everything. Students appreciate that and are willing to dip their feet in as well. Nice. All right, so now for a couple of just softball questions. So um, are y'all playing any games for fun right now? And if so, what are they? I just discovered a card game called Gulag. And I have the cards printed out. I'm going to try and remember now. Ray, you might have to talk a bit so I can remember who created this. But it's a, it's a card game called Gulag in which you play one or the other, either a, a somebody who's running the work or a cooperative laborer or a rebellious laborer. And I think there are a couple other roles. And as you play, you're trying to figure out, of course, who the other people are um, within the gulag based on the actions they're taking and how they're responding to the, the commands to work. Um, so I haven't played it yet, but I'm about to. And I'm leaning on my work study students to have a game night soon. So <laughs> but I'd like to use it in class. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I just got uh, the Dietz Foundation's Free at Last uh, in the mail a couple weeks ago and have been kind of getting it out of packaging and figuring it out for solitaire playthrough. Uh, and and the reason why I'm saying I'm you know, like getting through it and figuring it out is because it's just such a beautiful game. And I find myself just looking at the components of it and and like reading the cards and and so i haven't actually been able to bring myself to play it yet because i'm just enjoying so much working with the pieces parts of it. fantastic and then if uh, people want to reach you uh as you seem open to uh where can we find you online uh so for me i'm on social media facebook instagram linkedin twitter um as at 42ED games. So the number 42ED and games. Uh, and Kimberly? I am Redding, R E D D I N G, at Carol, C A R R O L L U dot E D U. Fantastic. And uh, if you're listening to this uh, podcast, you probably know I'm everywhere, everywhere online as Beyond Solitaire. <laughs> but thank you so much to both of you for your time. This sounds like such an exciting game, and I absolutely wish you great success getting into more classrooms. Thank, thank you, you so much. It. It's been just a pleasure. It's been a joy. Thanks so much. Everybody out there, please don't hesitate to like, subscribe, comment, ask questions, and most of all, happy gaming.